Hello, listeners. Hey, this is Marsha Epstein with Talk With Me in Lawrence, Kansas, with people who I get to talk to who are all over, which is part of the fun of doing this. And I always hope that I get to introduce you to people who you maybe haven't read or heard yet or seen their work, whatever kind of artwork it is, because almost all of my guests are artists. And today is this anomaly in my world of recording podcasts in that I actually have a guest in the room with me. (laughs) Mostly we're relying totally on technology with people in various places. So this is kind of fun. And I was looking back, we were just talking before um, starting the podcast. We met three years ago and recorded a podcast back then. So it'll be interesting to hear what's going on now with my guest, who, as I said, is right here waiting for his chance to talk. Hey, welcome, Creed Shepherd. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, that, that laugh was timed perfectly. It was intentional. Yeah. Oh, man. You you have a very unique laugh and powerful I laugh. Know. Like I, it punches. I've had people say, you know, I was down the hall and I heard your laugh and I hadn't been in Lawrence in years. And so I had to come say hello. Yeah. <laughs> It's a neat thing to have uh, your an anomalous voice. Uh, yeah. Hello, and thanks for having me. And, I'm glad uh, to do this. And I thought about, you know, I thought about that last, uh, that yeah, that uh, interview, uh, that talk uh, three years ago. And uh-huh. I, I was really regretful uh, of, uh, of, like, I kind of held back uh, maybe some contention that I had with certain things. And, uh, 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 you, you know, working in, you know, social work and uh-huh. the field of mental health, uh-huh. um, it's a different, completely different perspective. And it really is so people focused, uh, you know, uh, emotions um, and coming of age in the uh, in the in the 80s and 90s. I, I I mean, this started actually before, like in the 60s or 70s, the so-called self-esteem movement, okay, which I think was really it went in this really horrible direction where it wasn't about really uh, individual self-improvement, but just like coddling. And and it's, of course it made its <laughs> way. Every kid gets a trophy, that kind of thing. Yeah, about. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and it made its way into the culture wars. And uh, uh, over time, uh, my views have changed because I have discovered so much uh, 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 about, um, I guess, emotional literacy. And also the embodied arts, these kinds of things kind of tie together. And now I'm actually working with three to six year olds. Uh, and so that's just. That's awesome. But um, but so the reason I bring that up is because uh, so my fourth chat book, Rapport Privilege, my third chat book is also called Rapport Privilege. <laughs> but uh, it's slightly different. Um, and there's I mean, I, I'm very left wing and everything, uh, but uh, I it's. Part of the, the title, of course, is a nod to this this use of the term privilege. And there are a lot of other kind of terms that have come on uh, to discourse, you know, political discourse, especially. And um, and some of it is not very clear to a lot of people, to, you know, lay people who are not uh, who are not plugged in to, you know, these topics of uh, whether it's uh uh, racial uh, issues or LGBTQ. Um, and so these, you know, and 
it, there's some continuity with the, the themes that I was working on um, in my first two chat books really dealt with this sort of alienating perception of uh, anti-intellectualism. And, uh, and so, it, you know, I started to think about language and the way we use language in a way that displaces us or displaces others, or how, but also the opposite, how it can actually create uh, community. And uh-huh. I mean, but even community, there's like this inherent exclusivity in any community in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the idea about rapport privilege was just sort of like without being, um, without making any doctrinaire or polemical statement is this kind of uh, interrogation of language that maybe we use a little bit too loosely. Um, so rapport privilege is like this larger, you know, well, it's, uh, you know, we, we you know, it, you can almost trace any sort of injustice to an individual based on, you know, minority group, according to, you know, it's that whole thing. It's who, you know, and um, tying it back to the, interview I did when I did uh, that was for the second chat book uh, reinventing the third wheel um, the massive uh, insecurity and resentment that came out from that um, from just uh, uh, just this horrible this problem I have with self-promotion it led me to sort of take on more seriously this joke that I invented of uh, the self-publishing that I do under the moniker Enduring Puberty Press. So um, almost right around that time, I started focusing on writing letters, writing long epistles, and making assemblages and collage gift packages to send to people, friends, um, writers that I was fans of, uh, you know, other people that that I knew really well or admired, and uh, and try family, trying to really start this. Um, uh, com- community in a way, or a um, bunch of communities based on correspondence art. Um, and it wasn't really intended to be kind of this uh, anti-technological thing, but it was to uh, maybe kind of supplement or complement this overwhelming uh, accessibility of connection via electronics, which uh-huh. serves the opposite of the intended purpose of like, you know, where we're all connected to each other. Right. So, um, so I've been, so I, I wanted to come here to both promote report privilege, my fourth chat book, which is ha- uh, uh, radically different than my third chat book, but it contains some of the same poems and talk about it's the same name. It has some of the same poems. What's the time span difference between the release of the two? Um, yeah, um, a year and a half. Okay. This was, I actually had this done uh, back uh, before at the end of 2016. I had this all done, and it was going to come out much sooner, but the schedule was really diff- difficult to work out. It's put out by Spartan Press, which is based in Kansas City. Fabulous. And uh, Jason Jason Reber, yes. uh, big thanks to him. He, yes. he was the one who came up with this. And the original idea was to put out uh, – a Call Valley poet series, a, a poem, a book of poems from a poet from the Call Valley area, uh, every once a month, and it didn't quite work out that way. I think I and um, there's somebody else, Billing, uh, 
Annette. Annette so, Billings. is from yeah. Topeka. Yeah. Uh, Huascar Medina, who's also from Topeka, has a book uh, the, on, in the Pop Poetry series. So yeah. And they came out just kind of around the same time. Okay. Um, but um, I'm happy to wait this long. It's fine. Um, so the, the other one I self-published, I didn't even have a reading for. Uh-huh. I did very little promotion for. Um, but I think I ended up <laughs> breaking even on the printed. So this is... The first book that is not self-published, this fourth one, Report Privilege. Okay. So here, my real question was, how much time was there between the two versions of Report Privilege? Um, in terms of the, the publishing, uh, it was a year and a half. But in terms of the writing, uh, this the, what's new about this is that most, I'd say half the poems in this were published at the latter half of 2016, whereas everything in Report Privilege, most of that was done in 2015 and early 2016. And the reason I was asking that question is because one of the things that is really interesting to me in in my interest in language is how the context of when I as a reader, when anybody as an audience or reader experiences something, the context is different than the time when the poem was created. And so even reading the same poem in different moments in time, it has very different meanings. That's such a great point because I think the the preserve, uh, as uh, some may call it, or the institution of uh, literature, I think they really trad- conventionally downplay that, the, the readerly experience. I mean, there are all these theories now about, you know, reader response, but it really is what the reader puts into it that can radically change it. I mean, it's very hard to, uh, even I think I've talked to people who've, you know, gotten their MFAs and whatnot and are, are professionals, unlike myself, uh, literary people. And it's very hard to not read, read yourself or your experience into. It's impossible. Yeah. It's really, it's really impossible. Yeah. And, uh, and the other piece to me is from my perspective, there's this huge shift in the world that happened with the November 2016 elections. Yeah. You know, and so something like one of my favorite poems in the whole world is a poem by Annette Billings called what you allow lingers. And it has to do with keeping hatred and violence away. Well, if I, I may be wrong, but I think that when it was first written, it was, um, related it was about relationship violence but as i read it and hear it now it's more about hatred and bigotry and to me you know and i and i love that poem and to me the many layers of meanings because it can be on that very intimate personal relationship and it can be on what is going on and so that's that's one of my examples of how different even not just me and my own personal experiences influence the meaning I make out of things I read, um, but also the the more global experience. What what's going on around me yeah. in, in my city, in my community, in my state, in the country, in the world? You know. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. And those kind of poems, if they're they're done right, they're just they're. It, yeah, it's so successful where it can be, it can touch you in these personal spots, but you know, it's like, well, they're just this, they're not just talking about, you know, this one situation or this, uh, 
Yeah, and I, w- I wish I could write more like that. And uh, I think uh, the election of 2016 was a uh, serious trauma, and uh, it did bring other kind of crises and anxieties and uh, other maybe smaller scale objects of, of anxiety to a four. I remember talking to people, a woman who, uh, I mean, she was in tears because when she saw this guy who I refuse to use his name, I call him President Cheeto Taint. Um, I don't think we should give the, him attention uh, as a matter of rhetoric, as a matter of, you know, persuasive speech. Um, she, you know, he reminded her exactly of her daughter's ex-husband, who was a a bully, yeah. a domestic abuser. Um, the same sort of uh, yes, just meandering, lying, uh, just yeah. no no sense of like, well, maybe they don't even know they're lying. They're, maybe they're just so far gone. But anyway, um, yeah, I think. I think that's as a matter of rhetoric, not to get too far off the subject, because I don't like to, I try not to be, I try not to give into the rhetorical impulse. And when I write poems, I don't want to be, I don't want to be uh, preachy, but I think rhetorically, if you can relate what's going on in a national scale to what happens in more intimate quarters, uh, all the better. Yeah. People who deny uh, racial injustice, uh, injustice against, you know, people who are transgender, um, uh, people like our neighbor, Syed, who is taken away by ICE, yeah. um, then you are, if you are ignoring those problems, then you are doing what's called gaslighting. You are, you are not recognizing that, you know, you're not recognizing the genuine fears and yeah. And pain yeah. of, of these people. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that's kind of psychotic. Yeah. It's not the world I want to live in. So I would like you to share some of your poetry now. I'm sure. There are lots of things I would hope we'll get to in this. But I think now would be a great time great. to hear what your words sound like in a certain poem. So, um, so there's probably about, and I'll, I'll say this at the reading too, the Raven, there's kind of three... Uh, three types of, of poems that seem to be coming out. Um, often what I'll do is I'll try to uh, combine two separate incidents, events, or uh, narratives and uh, kind of interrogate or juxtapose one another. And then there's also the more accessible kind of, uh, I guess you could almost call them docu-poems, and they're usually like accounts of somebody else speaking or somebody whose you know, conversation I'll, I'll, I'll steal as <laughs> a found poem. And then that there, there's other that are much more concentrated in uh, an image or an object, and uh, and it's more, much more linear. I think I'll start off with that. Um, and there are all these very long titles in here. And then uh, yeah, this is. I think I'll, I'll I'll start with this. I don't. It's called. I don't know why photo albums never replace museums. Speaking of well-directed rage. Where it hurts the most, along someone else's monuments, the implicit rejection by their cis forefathers' greatest accomplishments, whose art thoughtfully challenges history, almost everyone's, but his legs keep on, as if driven, yet he will not stop for this installation, 
art. Supposing no one needs a witness, he doesn't remember when great, 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 great Grandpa May had his biopower robbed in some coal mine in Mostyan for some just imaginable pittance, and but still managed to spawn an heir. His great, 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 great grandpa May. Leonis Mundus's impossibility goes without saying, for that's when they went to the new world, never wearing black on their faces again, probably. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the second part of this. Um, there's a pretension in uh, my chat books where I really try to create a narrative arc. And there is a kind of a continuity. The immediate poem following this is called Speaking of Personalized Unassuming Monuments. Um, and uh, hinting to the, the installation art mentioned in the previous poem. The enjambment of this neighborhood, the pedestrian is always ensconced in stammering every day when trying not to alienate you. When metaphors are so new, it won't develop. Why the line stops right on 19th Street, mobile homes ornamented with barking dogs, then continues. It's the same way with new transportation infrastructure, being on foot with your bike until carrying over the railing, the tire-friendly pavement. Wouldn't be possible without the old way cities like Lawrence still create economic growth. Parents always lashing that one should not complain about the bringers by whom our favorite shows were brought to us. Tire-friendly pavement on the long road through the teasingly pastoral because it will be gone soon the corridor. And the point reached trying to be made is the only thing more placemaking than an urban landscape where free from any and all commerce is a toy store that is new penny on the other end of that dead end, just north of the still concealingly electrifying pylons. And that uh, that last poem, that uh, new penny, this was inspired, kind of an ekphrastic poem uh, in response to this installation art that was here about three, four years ago, maybe two and a half years ago, by a Wichita artist. I don't even remember his name now, okay. uh, but he put together this uh, building, this structure. It's like a uh, a fictional toy store. Uh -huh. And I think it was set at two different locations at different times. Right, yeah. And you, do you remember seeing it? I didn't actually see it. I, th I somehow I missed it, but I heard about it. It yeah. was very, very cool. Uh -huh. And um, I'm really into those sorts of things. Just this, these sort of very useless, but um, I mean, it doesn't even, it's not this cheap nostalgia either. It's very, the, the, in the things in there are very unique and kind of, Unselfconsciously futuristic looking things. It's all like mostly metal, and there's there's like little animals and clock type devices. But yeah, it's and I, I need to find the name of this artist because uh, yeah, I'm, I'm referencing his work, and who knows how how recognized he is. But yeah. uh, but it's but yeah, he's based in Wichita. All right.
So that poem obviously has local meaning. It's that it's that it's based on physical places yeah. here and things going on here. Is that common in your poetry? It's really not. Okay. Um, but I love poet. Uh, I love a lot of poets that that deal with the place. Uh-huh. Um, it's probably one of the most dominant themes in in well at least in American poetry uh in the last what 50 years um Charles Olson was uh, and even wait, William Carlos Williams uh definitely um uh, uh were concerned with a sense of place mm-hmm. but um I think that's why I've read this so much at readings uh, open mics and stuff because it's I feel like it's so it's so immediate and it's, and I think of course people around here, they know that it's about someplace. I'm not just making it up. Right. And I'm sure that also people from other places would relate to it about things that they've experienced. You know, I think that there's so many things that are similar, the the things we have in common challenges. And I think about, you know, that the destruction of older buildings or the, the allowing them to disintegrate to the point where somebody requests um, demolition and rezoning and, and yeah. something wholly different becomes the replacement, if you call it that, on that side. That there there are so many issues of that relate back to your yeah. your overriding concept of rapport or privilege, you know. Yeah. Who gets to live where? Who gets to have a local business and where can they have it, you know? Yeah. I was listening to this I overheard something on the radio about I can't even if we listen to too much news. <laughs> but it was it, there was a comment that was that the comment about how how it was unfortunate that the hurricane damage in Texas affected lower income people. And my reaction was, it is basically intentional because it relates to where you allow people to live. Exactly, exactly. The wealthy, the rich, they pick their spot based on the security and they will, yeah, they will build yeah. usually without yeah. any regard to. So, so I say that only in the, to me, that's a common issue of place, yeah. not just related to that one. And so we, so we get to take that meaning, like we were talking about earlier, we get to sort of personalize, you know, I don't think there's any, any opportunity not to, the meaning that we make out of things that we hear. And, and it is a connecting thing. I, I believe that, that art really connects people, that people hear things, see things in art that maybe they wouldn't um, realize before that, that they aren't alone in their experience and their belief and their feelings, you know, it's, it's powerful. It's really powerful. Yeah. So I want to back up and have you say a little bit about you just more obviously even what you've said you write poetry you said you work with three to six year old kids you know you have this press and we'll say more about that but a little bit about you and your background that led you into uh what led me to poetry and publishing well i think at some point 
I was probably 17 or 18. I was a very late bloomer in so many ways. Um, uh, I really got into literature um, and I started writing my own poems. Um, I probably, I still at that, at that point, even at that point, I think I wrote way more than I read. Um, uh, that's a little dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I, so I come from a background of, uh, you know, uh, there weren't really any books that were lying around in my house that much. I mean, we, 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 we are pretty, we come from, you know, there were hardly any college graduates in my family. My, my mom, my mom, uh, didn't finish high school. Um, and I was completely, uh, messed up and, uh, didn't, I, I, I spent a lot of time watching television. Um, I didn't want, I didn't intend to go back this far really, but, but yeah, there's always a sense it's like, well, wait, maybe this will make more sense if I go back to when I was a really messed up child. Wasn't interested in school at all. Didn't really do good until the end. Um, um, did some co- some college. Uh, never graduated, but um, but I was always actively writing. And at that point, it really was a part of like my self esteem. Um, l- shortly thereafter, I very much rejected that kind of. Uh, you know, I, I totally went in a different direction. I uh, wasn't interested in writing any direct or even indirect uh, autobiographical things. But um, I think a couple weird kind of, uh, I don't want to say serendipity, uh, but like I met Ginsburg uh, when Ginsburg read at Free State. I think this was in July of ni- 1996. I had just graduated high school. Um and that was kind of a big deal. I got to read in front of him, and I wow, I went, that is a big deal. Yeah, and I wasn't trying to. I just I wanted to go see him, and uh, but the person, uh, another big uh, factor. This is somebody who's really important, I think, to uh, my continuing to write poetry is Matt Fowler. Uh, he used to yeah. be really active in the late '90s, early 2000s, mid to mid '90s to early 2000s, uh, organizing readings. And uh, he helped put that one together at the Free State. And it was a very, like, sort of, a, uh, you know, very sudden, like, hey, Ginsburg's in town. Let's make this. And I think Jim McCurry, who you've also had on your yeah, show. Yeah. Love Jim. Uh, yeah, he was he was also um, a part of, of that as well. And actually, even before Ginsburg, Jim was the first person to publish me because he used, he used to run um, Smelt Money, which – I love so much. It was like this little micro press. You just did it on like a one, I don't know, was it 11 by 17, just like paper folded up three or four, you know, um, great stuff. And he would get poets from not just Lawrence, but like around the world that he knew. Um, So uh, those things were kind of uh, pushing me to write. Um, And I think it was just one of the only things that I really liked doing. Uh Um. And Ginsburg told me to read Rimbaud, which kind of set me on a completely different track. And so I could I could go on and on and about like different influences. And but that's really what got me to to be uh, to to make be a poem maker. I I I still feel uncomfortable saying poet as if it's some sort of like uh, vocation that has some sort of 
spiritual significance. I just I'm really resistant to that. So I'm a poem maker. I, I really do like the. You're con- a poem maker. I like right? con- the constructedness of poems. I mean, uh, I have to say that when I got to meet Janetta Calhoun, she's the poet laureate of Oklahoma. She's delightful and wonderful in all kinds of ways. Her phrase is that she's a practicing poet. I like that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah, it's it is about practice. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, so that kind of more or less answers the po- uh, poetry and, and, and uh-huh. fiction, which I have yet to uh, publish. Uh, um, as far as the press goes, it was really this weird combination of um, being overwhelmed with social media, um, you know, coming of age in the eighties and nineties, I felt like I, and even like when I, the first few years that I was really exposed to literature and, uh, or philosophy or, you know, Western civilization, uh, of course, um, I audited in, uh, in another one that I took, it was, uh, it was easy to see this arc, this historical arc of where things were going. And that was kind of a big deal. Um, and, and I've always been a big music fan and I used to be a much bigger fan of the of film. And so I could see, and I, and I love to learn and study and, and visual art for that matter. Um, the historical trajectories of trends and movements and how it reflected kind of, uh, I guess, what could be called historical consciousness. Um, but with the internet, where it's like nothing is, you know, nothing is lost, nothing is forgotten, because everything can be recorded and captured, which, of course, also produces a result of, hey, people can be uh, less vigilant with their own thoughts because, hey, it's you can save it, you know. And that and just the oversaturation, the fact that there was this, you know, the so-called democratization of things that people were hopeful for in uh, the first few um, years of, of the Internet's prominence or the first decade, maybe. We thought like, uh, you know, oh, you know, anybody's going to be able to, you know, put out their own stuff and begin to get recognition. And while some of that's true and there have been a lot of breakthrough, it's still over time. It becomes uh, ossified and corporatized, and uh, everything becomes commodified, and and uh, it's just too big, too huge. So uh, what I really wanted to do was uh, bring it back to a pre-digital uh, format, the uh, the epistle, the letter, um, and really try to uh, get back to this sort of like one-to-one interpersonal communication that is so lacking in social media. Uh, at the same time, uh, I've always been the kind of person who's willing to be a fool and, <laughs> uh, willing, willing to, willing to admit things that most people don't have the courage to do. And I, I try not to take too much pride in that, but I, I, I I've gone through great lengths to emasculate myself at, at times or humiliate myself at least to, to prove that. You know, as if, like as if I'm rubbing it in. <laughs> so that, and along with my, maybe it's kind of juvenile. There's still this sort of, and I think mo- a lot of people, not just artists, but artists, just uh, go through this sort of resistance to this very natural human uh, desire and need for recognition. Um, uh, how do we channel that? I I've wanted to channel that in a way so that. 
I am inspired inspired to write more. I don't want to write to be published, you know. Um, but the whole process of promoting oneself, when especially when I'm not, I, you know, I didn't graduate college. I didn't. Uh, I I probably still be like a sophomore if I I came if I went back and re-enrolled. I um, so not having a, a network or a scene that I really belong to. There's this sort of you know kind of resentment that builds up, and it's very kind of counterproductive. Resentment inside you? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Particularly when, uh, if like you know you've been an acolyte to others, and you've really tried to support and promote other people, and there's no you know there's no expected reciprocation, that sort of thing. So I kind of took all of that, and and then I I really dove into enduring puberty press. Um, the name, of course, is uh, very awkward. It makes, I think it probably gets some sort of awkward reaction, but as mentioned by a Neil Simon uh, character in one of his plays, it's a scientific word. <laughs> what do people have against science? Well, in 2018, a lot of people have a lot of good science, right? Yeah, anyway, yeah. back to you, Creed. Yeah. <laughs> So, but it's also a play. It's also a very personal uh, title because I I did not uh, start puberty until I was about nineteen, almost nineteen. Um, I have a series of medical conditions. Uh, my endocrine system's really messed up. So uh, there's that. That has really marked me. Uh, it's my whole experience of life is is very much bound up in. Uh, living like that, coming of age like that, not having uh, anywhere near a normal or healthy uh, adolescence. Um, not, you know, not actually having an adolescence during those expected years. So that's also a play on it. Um, but it's also, you know, really just playing up this very unprofessionalism. Um, because, you know, we're at a, a point in our existence where we are actually existentially threatened with the climate crisis and uh, creeping yeah. dictatorships. Um, you know, the, you, I don't have to tell you, you know. Um, so, I'm, you know, the idea of this, ins these institutions that preserve literature has a thing or art or anything just seem really ridiculous. Isn't it always about communication? Um, so the, the magazine is about 88 pages and it's got fiction poetry. Um, I got people submitting contributors from, you know, I got a great science fiction piece from Canada. Um, there are also some very interesting uh, interviews with a uh, uh, interview with Randy, a local uh, junker, Randy Walker, uh, who uh, runs the Museum of Odd out of his house. Uh, yeah, poems, fiction, some the other visual art that's in there. Where does that? Come and from? definitely visual art. There's some collage and there's some drawings from a high schooler, the only adolescent. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, yeah, th these are okay. these are from Hannah Kuntz. Um, I saw her drawings up at La Primitaza, and I'm like, I want to publish these. So it took a while. I had a few readers that helped me uh, initially. Um, and then I edited and published it. And uh, and then there are a lot of anonymous letters in here, too. Very strange letters and, and an email that is a, a philosophical uh, discussion of a of a science fiction novel that ends up being a discussion about uh, the uh, contradictions in libertarian philosophy. And anyway, it's just it's it's a lot of fun. 
Is that an online journal? Or it, is that... it, it, it is available online. It's available online at uh, my, on my on my blog, my website. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, just if you just query enduring puberty press, it's the first thing that'll show up in the search results. <laughs> uh, that's probably. Yeah, no, you're, go figure. No one has came up with that collocation, and and I have not trademarked it. And uh, I, I, again, I'm kind of always, I want to make this into a business, a viable business. Right. Uh, there's a lot of other projects that have the moniker, which I'll tell you about in a second. Um, but I want to clarify. Yeah. You said it's available online. Is it also available in print? It's available in print. Uh, you just have to order it, and uh, I'm... I'm uh, at this point, uh, there's a, I, I haven't replaced the original online payment system, uh, but I just basically like donations slash subscriptions. If you want to give me money, uh, you know, you'll be able to contact me. My email is blamecreed at gmail.com, um, but it's free. It's online. But uh, if you want the hard copy, um, I can definitely provide. Yeah, you can definitely order a print copy and I'll be able to. Send it out to you. Um, and so, yeah, epistolary art, um, trying to bring it down to more uh, uh, a, a sense of community. Each issue, it's going to be an annual review, and I'm probably going to include some journalism in future issues. And I'm hoping to publish other writers and, and artists. Yeah, each issue is, like, based around a theme. And each of the issues themes are kind of like in a Venn diagram. Like each theme will probably be re-echoed. Previous theme will be will be echoed or touched upon in in subsequent mm -hmm. uh, uh, magazines. But this one's called "Privacy Invades Back," um, which I just basically wanted uh, writings about that deal with the boundaries between uh, public and private, whether they're totally messed with, subverted, or um, they come into perfect harmony or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a, a really big thing, too, about, like, well, I just don't want to – I don't want to worry about – I don't want to self-promote myself. I don't want to be a professional. I would much rather run curated – go to a curated, like, uh, makeshift museum in somebody's house mm -hmm. than go to a museum or even a gallery. Nothing against galleries or museums. I, I do love going to them, but – um, just building up this intimacy of experience um, that's not, you know, that doesn't have this sort of uh, professionalism or careerism that's like tagged with it. Well, how about reading something from that magazine? Um, why don't I read a poem? And what, what is the magazine actually called? The magazine is called Enduring Puberty Press, a literary, visual, okay. and epistolary art annual. Okay, that's the name. And the theme for the first issue is privacy invades back. <laughs> Definitely don't take a picture of this. I can provide you with the <laughs> I can provide you with the final version. Um, so I'm just gonna read. I'm not gonna read. I'm gonna not gonna read my editorials. I'm gonna read a poem by Jonathan Mayhew. Um, these are poems of doubt, and uh, they're not quite serialized, but they're certain. The poems are. Individual stanzas, uh, you know, separated by little asterisks. I saw a woman I knew walking down the street with her son. Then I realized she had no son. She was not the woman I was thinking of, or she only seemed to be walking with him, or he was being cared for by her. 
though not her son, or there was some other relationship between them. I feel vibrations of a motorcycle passing by in my wooden table. I am inside, and the motorcycle is outside. There is no difference between inside and outside as far as vibrations are concerned. I know nothing, you see. My deepest convictions are nothing. I can know about yours are no better. I can't tell you this, though. There are ways of life for you, meaningful to you, forms of your feeling. What is love? No one knows. What is desire? Everyone knows what it is through personal experience. That is the only way to know something personally. Poetry is socially constructed, unlike the sea. And I'll just stop there. There's a sample from Jonathan Mayhew, who's a professor of uh, Spanish literature at uh, KU. And also sometimes uh, very unprofessionally uh, plays piano at uh, Cotton's Hardware Store sometimes. Uh Uh-huh. One of those sort of found pianos that's now outside. Yeah. 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 I think it might be inside, but yeah, it's just I've I've never even noticed it there when Uh I go to the hardware store. But Uh anyway. Um, so that's just a sample, but there's a variety of things, fiction, uh, letters especially, uh-huh. uh, interview with this uh, man who is this kind of stuff I found of these muscle men, these very gaudy muscle men drawings uh-huh. that were done in 1949, 1950 that were submitted to a major muscle magazine. And then attached with that is the letter from the the, the editor of the magazine. This magazine happens to be part of the big uh, empire from the, like the, the, the bodybuilding, not that I have any interest in bodybuilding, (laughs) but it was wonderful to find in this antique mall, these drawings, uh, this, uh, and so there's an interesting story on that. Uh, and you know, and this mystery about who this person is, because there's, there was a, there was a lead that this person was actually a, a brilliant engineer who helped, uh, actually work on the Apollo mission who helped build the battery that saved the, uh, the one Apollo mission that was almost Uh stuck in space. Uh But he had this secret life where he was really into muscle magazines and and drawing illustrations of muscle men. Really funny. And he happened upon that. In in an antique store in Knoll, Missouri, Uh which itself is kind of an interesting town. Uh, I think the, I'm afraid the river might be polluted that I swim in and, Tyson operates there, but there's a big, there's a big Somali population. There's this great Somalian uh, uh, grocery store. And then close to that is this antique mall. Uh-huh. And one of the booths was this guy. Uh-huh. Not only did he draw muscle men, but he was really big into nautical uh, engineering. And he did, he had these maps of old sh- famous ships. He had blueprints of the Mayflower, which my partner, Jamie bought. Uh, and we had that, on our wall for a while. The blueprint <laughs> of the Mayflower. Like, oh, cool. Um, so I'm really interested in that, in people who have these secret lives, who aren't trying to be famous or anything, uh-huh. who, uh, but who have this amazing creativity. And it's really about, you know, what they do by themselves uh-huh. with very low public expectations. Uh-huh. And because ultimately, if I could just do that for the rest of my life and, you know, you know, not be a burden to anybody, but just make a living off that. That would be wonderful. I don't, I don't really want that much praise. I just want to be, you know, anyway. (laughs) 
And as you're talking about that, one of the things I think about for listeners who are whoever and wherever, we have this amazing thing in Kansas, the Garden of Eden and Lucas, Kansas. <laughs> I love Speaking of it. art for art's sake. And in that same town, the Folk Art Museum. Yes. I, the, the I love Kansas that The Kansas Grassroots Art Foundation is, is housed there in Lucas, Kansas. And there's amazing art all over that community. Yeah. And at the edges of fields of corn. I mean, all kinds of amazing art. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, it's yeah. It's such a wonderful thing to be so close to all of that stuff. Yeah. I just it it blows me away. Yeah. 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 And then I don't know how you are, but I I think for me there's a there's a part of my brain that that sees what I experience as art in places that other people wouldn't. <laughs> and one of those I took a couple of photos yesterday when I was walking over to um, what's called the Lord's Arts Roundtable meeting at uh, the Watkins Museum. And at, at the corner um, of uh, 11th and Kentucky, there is this banner, this big sign saying that basically the church is enrolling kids in their preschool. And at this, at least yesterday when I went by, there was this heavy... <laughs> equipment there these big trucks with with big beds and and digger things and and so so here we are enrolling children and we've got these trucks to cart them away <laughs> and i know that is what really happens there but that's what my brain yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was right in front of you <laughs> Yeah. See, I, I love life. <laughs> so you have been writing and making other art, you said, since at least 17. And how old are you? So how long is that? I'm 40 years old. Okay. Yeah. So and I, yeah, I was, looked like I was 12 until I was 26 or 13 until I was 26. And now I look like I'm, I, I guess I'm in my late 20s. It doesn't matter how many times I tell people, uh -huh. acquaintances anyway, uh, how old I am. They'll always forget and they'll think that I'm way younger, which is fine. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm finally feeling the effects of, okay, I'm not in my prime anymore. <laughs> well, the other part, the reason that I was asking is not because of how you look, but but thinking of the longevity of yeah. art, you know. I, I'm, I'm always puzzled by those people I meet who, um, you know, they, they have just begun writing or painting or whatever, and they believe that they are fabulously talented. <laughs> and I always wonder, like, what kind of person thinks that? <laughs> I mean, I granted some people are naturally talented in certain ways. I get that. But I mean, really. <laughs> You're, talk, you're talking about work. you're talking about people who people who believe that they are so talented yeah. and gifted who have been creating whatever kind of art for a very short amount of time. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, they're, they're, the rest of us who are practitioners, like we get really insulted by that. It's like, uh, yeah, yeah. I had two. I live with two two uh, young women one time, and one was a insanely dedicated dancer. One was a dancer uh, as a teenager. Uh -huh. Uh, but then it moved on to other things, art, and uh, and when she expressed the idea of getting a job professionally, it was just really 
Again, this this is a person who was always told that they were the great greatest and the best without <laughs> doing anything. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a famous story. I mean, a story of a famous artist who who had a showing had somebody comment, "Well, I could do that," and the response was, "And you didn't." <laughs> That's the thing. That's it. That, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, my, a former uh, friend, very good guy, Zach Young. I think he put that on his online social network uh, page. Uh, um, modern art is I could have done that plus equals, but you didn't. Yeah, I, yeah. It's not about the you know. Now I love, I appreciate very difficult works too. I mean, I love a, or I love complexity, but. The amount of effort uh, should not be a, a primary or certainly not a sole criteria for whether a work of art is good. Right. It's like it, it has no. And the amount of effort isn't necessarily <laughs> obvious to the viewer, the person who yeah. hears, experiences, whatever the kind of art is. We need to remember that. So tell us a little bit about your process in terms of writing. Well, nowadays I'm so busy. I multitask a lot. Um, I will usually, uh, and be, you know, because I'm always reading lots of different things. I don't read uh, poetry straight through uh, faithfully. Mm -hmm. I cheat on poetry all the time, <laughs> uh, and uh, so I what I, I do a morning routine a lot where I talk about what I'm reading. Um, I try to write about what I'm reading, whatever it is. But then I, I will always move to two poems online. Um, I'll usually, if I, if I, or the books of, of poetry that I'm reading, uh, you know, I'll include that there too. And then I'll write um, a few lines, whatever comes to mind. Sometimes I'll have it. I'll, I'll have a preconceived idea, and I'll just write, or maybe one or two lines, and I have no idea where it's going to go. And then I'll put it there, and then. From there on, there's this interesting marriage between uh, the 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 sense making, the intellection, uh, you know, the the narrative forming, and the uh, just the music that I might hear uh, in the lines that that are in my head right, or that I just put down on paper. Um, but and so I'll keep a document for each year, and I'll keep writing and writing. Um, and I'll put certain aster. I'll put like one asterisk if it's going to be continued, two asterisks if it needs work, but to separate it from the next one, and and three if I think that wow this poem is almost. Sometimes I'll be able to write one poem and it'll be just almost. It'll work for me, mm -hmm. um, but usually uh, half the work is when I edit. I spend on my chat books. I probably spend uh, duration. Uh, hours and hours within a duration of five months, sometimes editing and reconstructing poems or putting different poems together. If I see a, a connection, there's a, always a thematic structure above anything else. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really have, a, I rarely do forms like established forms. Sometimes I'll do, I'll try like a Sistina or a, I've done a VNA or different, like kind of a, a, a Willapin, uh, I'm, I'm I'm pronouncing that wrong with that word wrong the the French word the uh, the you know giving yourself all these rules where um, sometimes I will count meters but mostly it's free verse mm -hmm. and the organizing principle is not in meter it's usually not in line 
sometimes it'll be in collocation, like cliches or alter alterations of cliches, or I'll try to make completely new cliches, new metaphors that that are not yet that I haven't yet crystallized. But I just use that as the musical measurement rather than the sentence or the line or the meter. Um, but it's really that's why I say it's I'm a poem maker. I'm not really uh, I don't really think that I have a, much brilliance uh, as a literary person. Uh, it's there's this constructedness that really goes into it. Um, it's very much uh, it, there's a lot of artificiality into it, as you know, and um, I'm kind of OK with that. <laughs> Do you write on your phone? Do you carry a tablet of some kind with you? Do you write on your computer? I mean, when when you get an idea, when you get this these words that need to be part of poetry, where do you record them? How do you? So oftentimes, I'll leave my computer at home and I'll just I'll have a little uh, a notebook. I, I still keep notebooks, um, and I do a lot of sketching in them as well, or ideas. Uh, and I'll end up transcribing that into the documents on my computer. I never, uh, I don't use the internet on my phone. I refuse to do that. And um, I don't look at my phone very often. I don't even use it at all right now. But uh, but yeah, it's always on my laptop or or like I'll, I'll I'm still feel very comfortable sketching and writing. But ultimately everything will go on the laptop that I'll just transcribe my notebooks um, so it's probably about 30%, 40%. And where's notebooks. your laptop backed up to? Oh, yes. yes <laughs> yeah. I got, yeah. You got so that covered? 200 millimeter, you know, uh, yeah. Megabyte hard drive, a terabyte. That, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Did you learn the hard way? <laughs> uh, I had a bad enough experience that, yeah. Yeah, that definitely was uh, was helpful to to. To, to lose something. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was only about three, or fortunately, it was only about three months worth of stuff. That's still a lot. So, yeah, such is the life of a dilettante. <laughs> I think we just, I, I know I sometimes just expect my technology to work, you know, and I forget that some days it's not going to, and whatever I can do to protect things that are important, right. so I'll be able to, to capture them even if my computer dies. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I wonder if 3D printing yeah. uh, would come in handy if that somehow. Like, can I? Can I? Can they actually get so detailed to like get the screen and the computer, and then it's like, okay, even if the internet technology goes away, the dinosaurs maybe it'll be preserved in these little crypts. I like it. So I think we're going to hear some more poetry. Yeah, it's probably and a good we idea. We need to make sure people know that you are going to be part of the Big Tent reading, yeah. Raven. On Thursday, February 22nd. Those are always fabulous events. So people, you need to get there. Yeah. Um, Raven Bookstore in downtown Lawrence on 87th Street. Lovely events. Buy stuff while you're there. Yeah, that's what I said. Chatbooks of poems yeah. and other books are all around Creed's, there. Creed's book will be there for sale. You could get him to sign it. The same with the other readers. You can buy a fabulous Make America Read Again. Yes. <laughs> from the Raven bookstore, all kinds of goodness. And it's it's just a great experience to be with a group of people and hearing the readings and in that great environment. Of it's it's really a good name for an event, the Big Tent, because yeah. yeah, they always do a good job of having very disparate three readers. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, I, I it's really exciting to yeah. be able to read there. Cause, yeah, that's one of my favorite places to go. Yeah. So I'm going to read you the 
large part of the title poem uh, of uh, Rapport Privilege. To, sh- to try to share the dilettante's experience. Some have even credited it with replacing museums logically. Logically? These homely drawings, poems, and songs, embracing everyone within the privacy of. Homely is a euphemism for retarded, itself an epithet for intellectually disabled. But we mean homely in the way that many intellectually disabled people look absolutely beautiful, and some intellectually enabled people look beautiful only in the way we think intellectually disabled people do. Abandoning the footnotes of transgressions. What a path to take. Is it a shameless conceit or some kind of undiagnosed mental illness? What a path to devise. Thinking outside the box requires a literal cardboard box to advertise the support of unalienated labor. Playing with the idea that Adam was a mere first denoter, $3. Playing with it a cappella, $5. So resentment takes its step toward oblivion and wounds from the dictatorship of capital, gently exits, is not a cliche, for a more rugged, Exciting individualism that permeates through the streets is a cliché, the word cliché, not much of one, merely a necessary first step to begin conversation. Now stick your salacious head back in your hearth tent conversation, not subjectifying you today conversation. No, 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 no. And I think I'll stop that sample there. There is a, uh, a, a, a reprise uh, towards the end, <laughs> so I'll read that. Okay. Rapport repri- uh, reprise. The dilettante sewed patches of replicas of nerve folks code. Nerve version of a toast gets halted for a blessed up. Alone will find the pattern and break it. No gender neutral first person plural. You expect patience to understand starvation. To try to share the dilettante's experience, some have even credited it with replacing museums logically. Logically? These homely drawings, poems, and songs, embracing everyone within the privacy of. To try to share the dilettante's experience, some have even credited it with replacing museums logically. Logically? These homely drawings. Poems and songs embracing everyone within the privacy of. To try to share the dilettante's experience, some have even credited it with replacing museums logically. Logically? These homely drawings, poems, and songs embrace everyone within the privacy of. All right. So that was poetry by Creed Shepherd from the new version of Rapport Privilege from Spartan Press. Shout out to Jason Reberg, this whole idea of getting more poetry out to the people, pop poetry series and more wonderful stuff. And I want to go ahead and slip in a mention. And October comes Kansas City Fountain Verse Small Press and Poetry Festival. And that... Uh, Sparrow's books, Jason Reberg, other people are huge in making that happen. 
What is it called again? I'm sorry. Casey Fountainverse, Small Press and Poetry Fest. I will put a link to that. But you are going to be part of the Big Tent, February 22nd, 2018 at Raven Bookstore. This has been fun and interesting. And I'm going to say, man, for me, I need to have Creed's words in front of me on the page. And yes. To what I heard. So plan on buying the book, which is available at Raven, and you can get your copies signed at that reading. Thank you, Creed Shepard. Thanks very much for having me. It's really fun to talk with you. Yay. It's been a blast. And thank you, Daniel Smith, for producing this show. Thank you, listeners, for listening. And please come back for more episodes of Talk With Me. So long, folks. Bye.